This is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. And I'm Rob Archer in for Charles Feldman. Now, if you have noticed, downtown L.A. is a lot busier than usual, and that's because it is. The Summit of the Americas starting today as the U.S. and other countries in the North and South America get together to talk about big issues like uh, immigration, climate change, and inflation. President Biden is going to be here later this week, but Mexico's president will not, along with the leaders of some other big players in Latin America. We're going to go in-depth on that. If anything, uh, what the summit might accomplish. California's primary election is tomorrow. Don't expect any long lines at voting centers and precincts, even though uh, early voting is uh, some indication that there is not a lot of voter turnout this time. And Vladimir Putin is warning the U.S. and Britain to avoid sending certain rockets to Ukraine or else. Big month ahead for the Supreme Court's rulings from some big cases will come down soon, including whether Roe v. Wade will really be overturned. Uh, Britain's Prime Minister Boris Johnson just surviving a no-confidence vote tonight in Parliament. will go to London, find out if uh, the leadership is permanently damaged in any way. And people across the country turning into cheaper tippers than before the pandemic. And Cheech Marin, more than just a comedian and actor, art collector, has his own museum opening soon right here in Southern California. So we will talk to him about that. We're going to start with the Summit of the American. Andrew Rudman is director of the Wilson Center's Mexico Institute. He's also the former director of the Office of NAFTA and Inter-American Affairs. Thank you so much for joining us today. So uh, first off the bat, before we get into what might be accomplished at this summit, uh, which countries are not attending and why? Oh, hi, Mike and Rob. Thanks for the invitation. Appreciate the chance to talk to you. Um, what I really can do is is talk about uh, Mexico's president, which, as you as you mentioned, uh, he is not participating in the summit. Uh, he uh, indicated back in May that he would not attend if the U.S. didn't invite the presidents of Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, and that, as as you and your listeners probably know, didn't didn't happen. Uh, the administration felt strongly that uh, the Summit of the Americas should be limited to those countries uh, with democratically elected leaders. And the three I mentioned, Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua, don't have, uh, don't meet that criteria. So they were not invited to the summit. Um, others, uh, several countries in, in the Caribbean, I know, uh, were not sure about their participation at one point. President Bolsonaro from Brazil indicated he wouldn't participate, but ultimately is meeting with President Biden. Um, I believe President Fernandez of Argentina did not, uh, chose not to attend as well. Okay, so does any of that overshadow the work they're trying to get done with, uh, you know, the the Mexican president giving the snub and this getting the the headlines before the thing even gets going? Well, yeah, I mean, I I think... I think yes and no. I mean, the, the U.S.-Mexico bilateral relationship is about much more than uh, just President Lopez Obrador and Biden. And there is extensive collaboration and coordination across all parts of our executive branches. And that doesn't change. Um, I, I think certainly the fact that AMLO, as he's known, and other presidents raised this issue of participation without a doubt distracts from the topics you mentioned in your intro that need to be addressed. And and there are topics, migration, climate change in particular, that really have to be addressed hemispherically. They're not issues that any single country can solve. 
So, yeah, I think it was an unfortunate distraction. Uh, I think in Lopez Obrador's case, it had at least as much to do with domestic politics as it did foreign policy. Um, and, and in fact, I think, um, you know, one w- with a good understanding of U.S. domestic policy would understand that making demands about Cuban participation almost ensured that the White House would, would not be able to extend an invitation given the, the Cuba politics in the United States. One of the biggest issues, of course, is uh, migration. Uh, most of the migrants uh, coming from areas in Central and South America where things are just not good. That's that's why they want to come to America. And most of them are going to come through Mexico. So what proposals might be on the table to uh, to have Mexico maybe try to help with the situation? And what could Mexico do that they're not doing now? And uh, so what could come out of the summit on the issue of immigration? I think, you know, as you alluded to, people are, are migrating because the conditions are not good. I, I always say when somebody chooses to walk a thousand, two thousand miles or more, uh, that's a pretty clear indication that the situation they're in at home is not tenable. Uh, you know, this is not a, not a vacation by any means. This is a really difficult and dangerous and often expensive trip. So I, I think what I would hope happens from the summit is actually a conversation about how to change conditions on the ground so that people don't feel like they have no choice but to take that arduous and dangerous trip. Uh, Mexico has collaborated and cooperated with the U.S. in trying to uh, slow and regularize the flows so that um, you don't have people being taken advantage of by the coyotes and, and the strugglers who extort money and, and uh, you know, commit human rights abuses against the migrants, et cetera. Um, I, I think it does require cooperation uh, and support from the United States uh, as people are, are denied entry into the United States or, or sent back to Mexico to await an asylum or immigration hearing they're living in pretty squalid conditions right on the U.S.-Mexico border, uh, obviously not too far away from where you are. And so I think the U.S. needs to be aware and be supportive of Mexican efforts to house, clothe, feed, provide medical care for these people who are waiting to express a legitimate request for asylum. And then, you know, to address some of them are going to be denied asylum. And in that case, I, I think that's where you get back to all the countries in the hemisphere working to figure out ways to provide safe opportunities for people to um, have jobs and be able to provide for their families, because otherwise uh, they're just going to continue to to seek entry into the United States. And if they can't do it legally, they're going to find illegal ways to get in. And that obviously supports the, the work of the cartels and other bad guys. Andrew Rudman, director of the Wilson Center's Mexico Institute. And again, as we've been telling you in traffic, if you don't have to go downtown while this is happening, just don't. Stay away. Right now, the state's big primary election is tomorrow. The biggest buzz is probably centered around the L.A. mayor's race and not much else. That's showing an early voting turnout so far. It's just about 1 in 10 registered voters cast ballots as of Sunday. We're going to look into why. Minnie Romero is founder and director of the Center for Inclusive Democracy at the USC Seoul Price School of Public Policy. Thank you so much for joining us. So what is it about this uh, this particular primary election that's got such low turnout? And is it because turnout's generally low in these types of primaries? Well, first off, thanks for having me. And, yeah, I think you just uh, hit the nail on the head. So 
Turnout is always low in primaries, period, but particularly midterm primaries when we don't have a, re- a presidential you know, race on the ballot. Um, we're looking at numbers that uh, right now are you know, potentially even lower than we might have normally expected, or at least in recent years. Um, but, you know, if you look at the most comparable election, the 2018 midterm primary, only 28% of eligible voters statewide actually cast a ballot. So the question is just how low will this turnout be? And, of course, in L.A. City, we've got a mayoral race, which should be, it is generating a lot of tension, um, at least on the airwaves. And we hope that that, you know, creates an uptick in turnout. We're not seeing it thus far, but there's still a lot of time to vote, and hopefully there'll be some surprises, right, in the end when all the votes are tallied. Yeah, why do you think it hasn't translated so far? people just waiting for it to be Caruso and Bass and then vote next time when, when they're head-to-head? Yeah, I mean, I think when it comes to primaries, period, right, no matter what races are on the ballot, you know, people don't define them often as salient. I mean, I think there's two buckets. One is, you know, the way we talk about primaries, the way they're kind of structured in our in our electoral system, you know, they, they're the place where people think decisions aren't made. They want to see the final ballot in November in their minds. It feels like, you know, less relevant. Um, and then the other bucket is kind of like the information gap. So, you know, people feel a little bit more confused in primary. Sometimes they don't even know that a primary is happening. Or that'd be hard press, obviously, in L.A., but there are a lot of potential voters, I guarantee you, that don't know that there's a primary happening. Um, and you know, uh, they see a ballot that has lots and lots of candidates because it's a primary. It can be overwhelming. It can be confusing about where to get that information. If you're not a regular voter, there's a huge information gap in terms of being able to find that information for candidates and campaigns to actually reach out to you. It doesn't happen as much with voters of color or low-income voters, those groups that historically don't vote as much in primaries. So it's kind of on both ends, you know, voters may be feeling like the primary is not as important or they want to at least they want to see the ballot in November. And that's what they're going to kind of decide on. And also the system not outreaching, so to speak, to voters as much and making it a salient and as relevant for them. Yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting because uh, I know some older people who remember the uh, good old days when the party bosses decided who the who the candidates were going to be in the general election. So there wasn't really much of a need for primaries at this level of uh, election, like uh, looking for mayors and representatives and senators and, and things of that nature. But in this case, you know, it's not even a party situation. Uh, Rick Caruso now registered as a Democrat. So you're going to be uh, most likely two Democrats running in the general. And a lot of people feel like, mm-hmm. why should I even think about or dive into the issues and the candidates when, you know, the one I might like is probably not going to survive the primary and I'm going to have to make another decision in November anyway. So that's that's part of it. Another issue is uh, one of the things that might have gotten people interested in this election is having some important ballot measures on the ballot. But that's they don't do it that way anymore. Why is that? Well, exactly. So, you know, in a midterm primary, we don't have a presidential race. Usually it's the governor that drives turnout often, you know, like if it's a competitive governor's race. A lot of money in that race, but of course we've basically already had our, if by many people's account, you know, our gubernatorial <laughs> election exactly. last year. Um, and ballot measures, right? That can be something that generates statewide attention, a lot of money. We're buying those ads, a lot of calls, a lot of volunteers saying, hey, look at our issue, look at our initiative. Um, but a while ago, a number of elections ago, California decided to move at least citizen-initiated um ballot propositions to the general election because of the primary turnout problem. We did not wanting major decisions, you know, made in our state by a very small subset of the voting electorate. Um, and that's what happens. I mean, right now, you know, no matter how low exactly turnout's going to be after everything's counted in this primary, 
we know that it's going to be low and we know that it's going to be very unrepresentative of the overall you know, potential voting population. Um, we have some major decisions that are being made, right? And it's not just about the mayoral race, right? We have other decisions that are very key to people's lives at the local level uh, that people don't know about or are not as familiar with um, and aren't going to be having a say in, you know, whether those candidates or those issues, how they advance you know, to, the, to the general. It's a recall effect for governor. People go, didn't we just do yeah, this? Yeah, we, we did this already. <laughs> Mindy Romero, founder and director of the Center for Inclusive Democracy at USC. Coming up, comedian and actor Cheech Marin going to join us to talk comedy and art. He's uh, one of the biggest collectors of Chicano art in the world and is even opening a new museum in Southern California. A new survey finds that people are also getting stingy with their tips again, even more so than during the pandemic and before the pandemic. Right now, Vladimir Putin warning the U.S. and the U.K. don't send longer-range rockets to Ukraine. Putin says that'll lead Russia to launch more bombing attacks. This comes after Kiev was bombed over the weekend for the first time in more than a month. With us is Kenneth Ledford, Central and Eastern European expert, chair of the Department of History at Case Western Reserve University in Ohio. Kenneth, thanks for being here. So what do you make of where we are with this? I was reading some commentary this morning, said, look, fierce fighting continues in some spots, but in others, it's kind of closer to stalemate status. Ukraine doesn't want to give up territory. Russia's de facto annexed some of this. They're dug in. They can't move. So more rockets, because that's what's in the playbook. I think your assessment is really pretty right. Uh, The issue has been that the Russians have longer range missiles and artillery, as well as some air launched missiles that the Ukrainians don't have. So that the United States and Britain have provided first howitzers with an 18 mile range, and now the HIMARS system with a 40 mile range. What Putin has done is said that if you give longer range missiles, I'll strike new targets I've hit I've not hit before. He's left vague whether those are targets in the western part of Ukraine or whether he will move the uh, violence outside of Ukraine itself. I think the latter is a bluff. Uh, This is sort of strategic ambiguity. Yeah, I was going to say, if he wants to widen this beyond Ukraine, I I don't think he's got any room to maneuver there, only because, as we were expecting when this all started, is that Ukraine was going to hold out for a week or so and then fall. But that did not happen. And every time we expected this vaunted, great, powerful Russian military to uh, win all these battles, and it it just did not seem to work. It's like there was no there there by the time Russia's military went in. So they've got these long-range missiles and everything. So why, I mean, still, the question is, why haven't they, they used all the power they supposedly have to finish the job in Ukraine that they want to do, and uh, Ukraine is just really kind of showing them up on the world stage. Ukraine has really performed better, I think, than most anybody expected them to, including British and U.S. intelligence at the beginning of the war. I think they were underestimated on at least three grounds. First, uh, many of their ground forces have trained with U.S. forces since 2014 in what has been a pretty serious war that's been going on in the east, in the Donbass, but which has fallen under the radar screen in the United States because of our distraction with domestic events. Second, uh, the uh, quick provision of Uh, particularly Stinger uh, uh, missiles, have made it really difficult for Soviet, uh, for Soviet, for Russian flyers uh, to penetrate deeply into Ukraine. 
so that they're sending long range missiles from a standoff position uh, in the airspace of Belarus or Russia itself. And third, I think that uh, Volodymyr Zelensky uh, has surprised everybody with his uh, uh, sort of Churchillian kind of leadership that has caused public opinion and spirits in Ukraine to rally around him and has really created a new anti-Russian Ukrainian national identity. In terms of losses on the Russian side, do you think that's gotten back to the population there at some point? I mean, parents are going to wonder where their sons are and realize that the numbers, they aren't adding up. It's it's difficult to tell, but there are there is some uh, uh, evidence that this is beginning to be reported back. Uh, Putin particularly is looking for new recruits and is increasing the conscription calls. And that sends a message throughout society and all the rest of Russia uh, that things aren't going well. Uh, but that, you know, Russia still has a substantially larger population than Ukraine. So that does this mean that this could be trench-like warfare for a long period of time. Uh, in the United States, after the two wars in Iraq, both of which went uh, astoundingly quickly in the initial stages, we've been sort of spoiled. Uh, but this one is much more like earlier wars in the 20th century. Kenneth Ledford, Central and Eastern Europe experts and chair of Department of History at Case Western. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Rob Archer, in for Charles Feldman. Supreme Court this week going to start issuing rulings from cases recently heard and in a month that could become one of the most significant in the court's history. There's the gun rights case out of New York, and then there is the abortion case out of Mississippi in which the draft ruling has already been leaked, and it shows the court might just be overturning Roe v. Wade. Now, with us is Amy Howe reporter and analyst for SCOTUS blog. She's a former litigator who's argued cases in front of the Supreme Court. Uh, what are the chances, uh, I know this is a question we kind of addressed when this thing first got leaked, but what are the chances that the uh, the ruling, when it is officially released on this abortion case, might surprise us and not be what we were expecting? I mean, there's no way to know. We know from the fact that there was a draft opinion in which Justice Samuel Alito writes an opinion that would overturn Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which are the landmark opinions saying that the Constitution protects the right to an abortion. We know that there were, when the justices voted back in December, five votes for that position. You know, we also know that things can change. We know back in 2012, during the Obamacare case, that the Chief Justice changed his vote relatively late in the game to uphold the individual mandate. So things are not set in stone. That was what the court said after the leak of the draft opinion, that this was not a final opinion. And to be honest, we just won't know until the court actually releases the final opinion. And when might that be if you were a betting person? Because they've got a little more time, right, before they do go to, to, to recess um, until the term kind of ends. But I'm also wondering, do you think the leak has affected the work so far? Because aren't they a little bit behind schedule from where they usually are? Big cases, but it doesn't seem particularly busy yet. That's right. They are behind. They released three opinions today, but they still have 30 more to release they traditionally wrap up by the end of June or the very beginning of July at the latest. So they've got a lot to do. 
I think it would be impossible that the leak has not affected the work at the court. You know, putting aside the idea that there is some sort of investigation going on, we don't know exactly what it is. I think it would just be impossible for, for work at the court to carry on as if nothing had happened. If I had to guess, I would guess that we're probably not going to get the opinion in the abortion case for a while. One of the leaks uh, of information after the draft opinion came out in early May suggested that the justices had not yet circulated the other, but when I say circulated, I mean sent out to the other justices the other opinions. You know, in a case like this, there's going to be not only the main opinion and a dissenting opinion, but some of the other justices are, are likely to write concurring opinions. There may be multiple dissents, and all of those go to all of the justices so that they can react in the different opinions. And the leak, one of the leaks at least suggested that none of those had been circulated yet, that only the draft opinion from Justice Alito had been sent out yet. And if that's the case, I think they would still have a little while to go before we see a final opinion. All right. Guns are on a lot of people's minds right now. Tell us about this uh, gun rights case out of uh, New York. Sure. So this is a challenge to a New York law that requires anyone who wants a license to carry a concealed handgun when you go outside your house to show proper cause for the license. And the courts in New York have defined proper cause to mean that you have to show a special need to defend yourself. It's not enough to say, I want to have, I have a general desire to protect myself. And there are several other states that have similar laws. And the Supreme Court hasn't really said much in the modern era about what the scope of the Second Amendment is. They've said in 2008 and 2010 that the Second Amendment protects the right to keep a gun in the home for self-defense and that both states and the federal government have to respect that right. And so gun rights advocates are eager for the Supreme Court to say more about what the Second Amendment protects. So the Supreme Court has some options. It could, you know, it could strike down this New York law and say, no, you know, this law is too restrictive. Um, But the big and I think everyone really thinks that perhaps at the moment that the justices agreed to take up this case, that they were likely to strike down the law. The real question is, are they going to say more about what else the Second Amendment protects or what it and what it doesn't protect? And that's what what we're watching. Yeah. See how narrow or or not it's going to be. Amy Howe, reporter and analyst for SCOTUS blog. Amy, thanks. Cheech Marin is a famous actor and comedian from right here in L.A. You know him from Cheech and Chong, of course, uh, one of the most famous comedy duos of all time. He was also on a uh, TV show, and I think, Mike, you were telling me your dad oh, had my dad used to love unhealthy love for Not unhealthy, show. but like it was always on. It was on like Friday nights or something. Nash it was Bridges, always yeah. Nash Bridges. Yeah. Nash Bridges. Uh, Cheech also a big arts collector, so much so he's opening his own museum later this month in Riverside, the Cheech Marin Center for Chicano Arts and Culture. And he's with us now. Cheech, thanks. Uh, before we get to the museum and plenty to talk about, you and Tommy Chong are up performing still. Uh, you're coming our way, right? Beverly Hills in August. I think so. I haven't checked with them yet. <laughs> I'm the last to know, you know. We can vouch for them. Yes, you're coming in August. <laughs> uh, uh, before we get to the museum, what will it be like to perform after? Uh, and how long has it been since you performed together? I think 100 years. Ah, that's a long time. Yeah. 
But we can do it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be I can at least a couple, three years because we took off after right as COVID was coming in and we haven't done it yet, you know. So so I guess that'll be the first time in you know, a couple, three years, maybe. A couple, at least a couple. It's going to feel good to get back up there again, though. I mean, you guys know what you're doing, we'll, obviously. We'll find out. <laughs> see how it goes. Like riding a bike. Uh, yeah. tell, tell us about uh, about the museum. Uh, what can we expect? Well, you can expect the greatest collection of Chicano art that you've ever seen. I've been doing it for over 40 years and traveling the collection around to over 50 museums in the U.S. and, and around the world. And uh, it finally found a home in Riverside, California. They, made, they gave me a building to house the collection. Um, and so we're, it opens on the 17th of June, and we're just beyond the moon uh, excited about it. Was that always a dream to have a place for all of this? I saw you quoted somewhere saying, you know, they called and they said, hey, we want you to have a museum. And, and your first thought was actually, well, I, I'm doing all right, but I don't know if I can buy a museum right now. Guys. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I'm doing museum good, you know, but, but everybody always asked, told me, oh, you should have your museum. You know, I, yeah, I should have a jet plane, too, but... I, you know, but uh, all of a sudden, this offer fell out of the sky from the city of Riverside. They came up to me and offered me this beautiful modernist building. And but I knew it was absolutely ordained because I asked them, "What is the square footage of this building?" And they told me that it was sixty-one thousand four hundred and twenty square feet. And when he said four twenty, <laughs> I said, "Okay, this is for me. This is mine. This is my museum. I don't get the reference. <laughs> Never." So do well, you, you will. <laughs> uh, do, you, do you have uh, you know when it comes to art and uh, the, the art and the culture it, you know obviously art is not all one thing and even Chicano art is not all one thing yeah. uh, do you right. have an eye for specific strains of that and and what appeals to you you know it's it's a, it's a combination of things and when I look I stand in front of a painting and it, and it combines a lot of the elements that I recognize and in a new way uh, it's like hearing the Beatles for the first time. You know, it's, it's something you know was built upon Jerry Lee Lewis and Elvis and, and Fats Domino. And, and the same way with these artists, they are all uh, uh, in university and or art school trained. So their influence is not just Mexican culture. It is a world culture, a world art culture. And so when they combine those with a salsa beat, basically, it's it's something new, and you recognize it right away. This has been well documented that this has been your interest, but how did it get started, and did touring help? I mean, did you go out after sets or, or when you were in different cities and go look for stuff? Oh, yeah, at least every city that would possibly have any Chicano art. I didn't go uh, uh, shopping for it a lot in Delaware. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, but luckily, through the, the course of uh, happenstance or or or, uh, or derivation uh, uh, spread, it is now from uh, Los Angeles to New York City. You know, it's, it's everywhere, and uh, where you have uh, that that Chicano, Chicano's becoming Chicano. That's, the funny thing about it is is that Chicano is a voluntary category. You have to declare yourself a Chicano in order to at least first be a Chicano because there's no box on the census that says Chicano, you know. And so, uh, and so it's, a, it's a voluntary category, and, and, it, and it, it comes from a certain attitude, you know. 
defiant, at first a defiant political attitude, but just generally a, a defiant attitude as far as, as not being included, and they, and they all fought against that. But that's changing now. You know, you made a comment about uh, 420, so I kind of have to ask, because uh, so much of uh, what uh, Cheech and Chong did has become part of popular culture. And people, uh, even if they didn't see you back in the day, they know they know the famous bits and everything. Uh, how does it feel to now live in a culture where marijuana is, is legal, recreational pot? You can you can go into a store and buy it in, in California and uh, a few other states. How does it feel to live in the culture now versus the culture then when that was part of your humor we told you so <laughs> <laughs> you know we used to say in the day you know when we got tired of people ragging on us we say uh, hey you know what what if it's good for you what if we're right what if marijuana actually is a medicine and it's good for you oh, oh, oh they laughed and uh, so who's laughing now <laughs> are you happy with where it is right now oh, though no actually i'm not i'm i mean i'm not it's not I'm unhappy, but we, we have to get it uh, legal federally, and that'll change the whole game. What because you have to reinvent the wheel every state. Yeah. If you're in Do you have more so, hope that, that we're, we're headed in that direction, albeit slowly? Absolutely. We've got 30, 38, 39 street, uh, states that have some form of medical marijuana, and it, it, and it enters every single segment of society. I don't care what, what it is, you know. Uh, every everybody's kind of uh, marijuana touches that society, so a uh, segment of society. So, I, I have a, a, a great a great uh, hope that it will become legally federally uh, soon. You and Tommy are on everybody's wish list to to light up with. Who's still on yours? Oh God, I think I've done all my. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to everybody. Yeah, There's nobody left. Yeah, I, there's not anybody that I want to anyway. <laughs> any, sure any, of, yeah. any possibility of another uh, Cheech and Chong film? It, it doesn't look like it. You know, we're kind of getting older and have physical deals. And uh, so I think we're, we're kind of done with the movies. But who knows what else? You know, we, we've been doing going to dispensaries now. So we appear live there and uh, talk to the people and. And I, I like that part. Yeah, and we'll see you in August because he's coming out here. So they're on uh, stage together. And he got through everybody on the list. Uh, Cheech Marin, thanks for talking to us. The museum in Riverside, the Cheech Marin Center for Chicago Arts and Culture. And again with Tommy Chong, August 13th, Saban Theater out in Beverly Hills. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Rob Archer. In today for Charles Feldman. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has survived a no-confidence vote, securing enough support in his party to remain in office. The whole thing's actually initiated by members of his own conservative party who are unhappy with his leadership. With us now is a friend of the show, Darren Adam, presenter on LBC Radio out of London. Thank you so much for joining us. So uh, good news for uh, Mr. Johnson. I imagine, though, he might be careful about celebrating with any kind of boozy party. Well, quite. He will be celebrating, but actually he has no cause to because this is a terrible result for Boris Johnson. He has won that vote of confidence, but the margin by which he has won compares poorly with every previous similar situation. Theresa May, his predecessor, got a bigger percentage of the of her party supporting her when this happened to her in 2018. She, despite that, was gone 
five months later. John Major had a better result in 1995. Margaret Thatcher had a better result in 1990. This, for, for Boris Johnson to have 148 of his parliamentary party, 42% of the people he works with every single day, saying, I have no confidence in you, this is a very, very bad result for the Conservatives and maybe the best result for the opposition because it keeps Johnson, who is crateringly unpopular, in power, protected from being removed by this mechanism again for the next 12 months, uh, at a time when they are likely to uh, to profit from his unpopularity. Okay, you anticipated my next question. The next go at this is, is 12 months the next time that they can do this again? Well, that depends if the Conservative Party change their own rules. And as we know, they are very uh, open to doing such a thing. There is some talk that they might change the rules to allow another challenge by this method in six months. But that is far from confirmed, and it would require the party to change its own rules. As things stand, he is protected from this challenge, this form of challenge again, Mike, for the next 12 months. But that is not to say that the, uh, the, the drumbeat against him in the party is not going to get louder and louder. There is a, a pair of by-elections coming up. I guess you would call them special elections in the USA in two very interesting seats, two very interesting constituencies, one in the north of England, which had been held by the Labour Party almost since the dawn of time, but flipped to the Conservatives in 2019, uh, along with a lot of seats in the north of England unexpectedly. It's what gave Boris Johnson such a, a big victory in 2019. The outgoing MP in that seat was found, it was found guilty of child abuse. And so he stepped down, and it is a nailed on certainty that the Labour Party is going to retake that seat. But on the same day, there's another by-election, another special election, in a seat in the south of England, which will present a whole brace of difficulties for Boris Johnson for, uh, for different reasons. Different voters will turn against him. And if, if he loses both of those seats, it shows that he is losing support from his, his new friends in the north of England, but also losing support from his more traditional voters in the south of England. And if Conservative MPs see that happen, and if they look at the unpopularity of this man right across the country, they will conclude that he's no longer the person that can win elections for them and, and keep them in the Commons. What's the source of all this uh, opposition uh, from his own party? Is it because of uh, the scandals of, you know, the parties during the pandemic, other scandals? Is it just a combination of everything piled on top of each other? Well, yes, I think I think very largely it is what is being called party gate ever since Watergate. Of course, any scandal has the suffix gate attached to it, whether or not it makes any sense. But party gate <laughs> has definitely caused a, a lot of people in this country to be actually disgusted. But because let's remember what party gate represents, a government that was making the rules by which tens of millions of people lived. People were unable to see their loved ones who were dying. They were unable to attend funerals at a time when this man and this government who, who made the rules forbidding such things were partying in Number 10 Downing Street and in Whitehall. So there's real anger about that. There's real anger as well about the way that Johnson appears to have downplayed it. He is, of course, the first sitting British Prime Minister to have been determined to have broken the law. He received a fixed penalty for his part in that, one of, I think, 126 fixed penalties that were issued uh, to people in Number 10 Downing Street and, uh, and Whitehall more widely. But there is, you're right to say it's a lot of stuff piling on top of each other, because prior to that, and, and we get into the, the, the slightly arcane weeds on this one, but in October of last year, this is where his problems really began, he changed the rules to protect one of his parliamentary party who had been found to have broken lobbying rules. Uh, the scandal that blew up around that meant that the Member of Parliament had to resign anyway, 
the subsequent by-election, special election, was then lost by the Conservatives. Johnson and his coterie were blamed for, uh, for, for the scandal of changing the rules and also mishandling the whole affair. And that really was the point at which he started to decline in the opinion polls. Partygate came pretty hard on the heels of that, and it's been relentless ever since, I would say. Darren Adam, presenter on LBC Radio out of London. Darren, thanks. Remember when the pandemic started and service workers were temporarily laid off like restaurant servers? And then uh, they finally came back to work and people were feeling very generous, promising to tip more to show appreciation for coming back and to help them out since they were laid off for so long. Well, it uh, didn't last too long. New survey from CreditCards.com finds Americans are worse tippers now than before COVID hit. Nick Layton, Etiquette Experts, host of the Etiquette Podcast, Were You Raised by Wolves? Nick, thanks for being here. Uh, we do like the name of that podcast. But what do you, what do you think this is? Uh, is? Does our generosity only last so long? You know, we, we tried to all do something nice uh, when workers came back to their jobs. I'm going to leave you a big tip, but uh, months later, it's just uh, it's just not happening. Thanks for having me. Yeah, isn't this survey so disappointing? Um <laughs> It's uh, mind-boggling. So what you're referring to is this creditcards.com survey, which is saying that today only 73% of people at a sit-down restaurant always tip. Only 73%. Like, what is this number? This is bonkers. So it's not even smaller tips. Some people just don't do it at all. According to the survey, 4% of people never tip. 9% of people tip only sometimes. And so, yeah, I, I don't know what to do with this. What is wrong with people? So, and this numbers are, these, these numbers are down. Um, we keep going down. Less and less people are tipping reliably as time goes by. So I guess I have my work cut out for me uh, to try and change this. Well, now, is, isn't part of it because of inflation and everything is costing more right now and people are just kind of like, uh, maybe it's not just because we're not as generous as we used to be, uh, but because of the fact that we're, you know, getting gas and having heart attacks when we're at the pump and buying milk and, and cheese and bread and meat and everything's costing more. Yeah, I think that's definitely a theory that people are using. Another theory that's come up is that because people are understaffed, the customer service is uh, poorer, so somehow that's leading to lower tips. Um, I'm not sure if that's true, but that's definitely a theory that's happening. Also, I think our memories are short. You know, during the pandemic, we were definitely generous because we realized how important all these people in our lives are and how much easier our lives are when we have the support from delivery people or uh, everybody else that we tip. Um, and I guess uh, now that we're in sort of a new endemic phase here, um, we just have forgotten about that. <laughs> so we don't feel as inclined, I guess. Do you think people get turned off a little bit by the uh, prompts that they're given sometimes? You know, they, they can bring the little card reader over to you and it shows 18, 20, 22, and sometimes 20 is like already marked for you and you have to change it. Or the receipts, you know, they'll have the boxes there and they show you and maybe people see that number. And they go, well, that's a lot. I was only going to leave this much, not that much. Yeah, I think definitely people don't like being told what to do. And so I think that's per, that's definitely a problem. I saw a prompt the other day that started at 25%. So your options were 25, 30, 35. Okay, wow. custom, right? Yeah. That's, a, that's a bold move. That's bold. That's pretty bold. Uh, but yeah, I think definitely the electronic tipping thing has created this new level of anxiety when you're completing sort of your average purchase at a coffee shop um, where people are feeling like, oh, what what is the right move here? Well, plus there's like people the day, behind you and then you have to figure out how to do it fast and then maybe you're just going to hit yeah, the I button just and run, get out. Right? I just want to get yeah. out. Take my money and leave well, me alone. 
And then there's that awkward moment where you pick something and then the screen flips over to the person serving you and you know they're going to see that number. <laughs> and you worry, was that good? You know, and it's not just at, at restaurants, too, because, I mean, for a while now, even before the pandemic, uh, we started seeing it at the uh, checkout lines and other stores. Uh, you know, when you uh, pay your money, you put your card in and it's reading the card and it says, would you like to donate to help uh, kids who are homeless? And, and you kind of feel like, wow, I'm getting, you know, you, they're looking at you and you, you don't want to say no because I'm a heartless, evil person. Uh, so you it's, you add some more money onto that and you kind of feel like you were kind of pushed up against the wall and had somebody reached in and grabbed your wallet. I mean, certainly there's a lot of reasons why we tip uh, or add some cash. And so one of them is because you want to feel generous. Um, one of them is also that the compensation system for a lot of workers in the United States requires tips to be part of their wages, which is why at a sit-down restaurant, you, you got to tip. You can't leave that. You can't leave without tipping. That's part of that person's wages. Um, but certainly there is a lot of areas where it is discretionary. So that dollar to charity when you're buying groceries, you know, it is entirely up to you and it is okay to decline that uh, if you're not feeling in the mood that day. I think, you know, past restaurants, is it still just that it's confusing to a lot of people? And then maybe there's like a younger, older divide or they never were taught what to do. I mean, housekeepers at hotels or or, you know, taxi cab drivers or, you know, I think people get it on Lyft because you can hit it if you want to. And when you're when you're giving the ratings on Uber and stuff like that. But, you know, past restaurants, people still get really confused about what they're supposed to do. Uh, oh, for sure. Uh, and they shouldn't because there's the Internet and it's real clear <laughs> on the Internet who to tip and how much. Like this is very well covered online. So you really have no excuse for ever being confused. But yes, definitely you should tip uh, hotel housekeepers. You should tip every day, not at the end of your trip. It should be at least a few dollars per day. Um, I think the, the the average is like five dollars is sort of what most etiquette experts say is fair. Um, and yes, younger people do uh, tip at lower rates than older people. Um, and uh, we will chop that up to just not knowing. Um, but for whatever the reason, that does need to change because um, in American society, tipping really is built into the compensation system for a lot of people. And so to not tip is actually um, beyond rude. It's actually just wrong. Yeah, and tipping changes, and I think some people kind of hesitate when, when they feel like tipping is changing, because for somebody who's as old as I am, and I, I don't even think that they had radio back when I was a young man, and I remember the accepted uh, tip uh, started at 10%. Well, now, as you say, some of it's starting at 20 and 25%. I think some people, maybe especially in the older generation, react to that, and they kind of feel like, you know, well, this is out of control, even though it's not. It's just keeping up with the trend of inflation. Well, but we often think about percentages. So that telegram person that delivered your telegrams when you were growing up, you would tip them <laughs> 10 or 15 yeah. percent. Uh, and so, you know, 10 or 15 percent for delivery today, also a good number. Nick Layton there. He's an etiquette expert, host of the Etiquette Podcast, Were You Raised by Wolves. He got me with a telegram. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm good. burned. I'm burned. <laughs> All right. That's in depth for today.